Father, as we come to the, what might be the most exciting text in all of prophecy, Lord, we, we're going to look at your second coming to this earth where you come with your church, your bride, uh, to establish your kingdom of truth and righteousness on your throne. And Lord, we see you coming. Uh, help us to see you coming. Open our eyes and help us to see you on this white horse with uh, the name written uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, Lord, uh, on your robe. And uh, you're wearing many crowns, Lord. And uh, we know that those crowns mean that you're going to rule and reign this earth in truth and righteousness. Lord, how we long for that day. And Father, I just ask today that uh, as we look at this text, that we all examine our lives, make sure that we uh, have accepted that proposal that you've given us, that we've received Jesus Christ in our heart, and that we are truly uh, you're part of your bride, Lord, and that we're truly part of your church. And so, Lord, I just ask you to, again, open our eyes and open our hearts to uh, hear this message today as as we uh, go through the last part of Revelation 19. Lord, Father, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit again on this text. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Today in chapter 19, we've got some really good news because we're going to see Jesus Christ coming with his bride to the battle of Armageddon. Now, I can't imagine... It's, uh, Someone bringing their bride to the greatest battle ever. Uh, that just is beyond my comprehension, but that's what Christ is going to do. And it actually has happened in our history in the past where people have brought brides to battles. Uh, one particular case that uh, you might have studied in uh, your history classes is the Battle of Bull Run. Uh, it was fought in July of 1861, and uh, Lincoln had uh, told his generals that he wanted to uh, send a large army into Virginia, and that he wanted to defeat the southern rebels once and for all, and uh, they, were, they had uh, signed up for 90 days, and the 90 days was running out, and so they wanted to end the war once and for all, and so they sent these 35,000 soldiers into Virginia. Well, uh, it seemed like victory was a sure thing. And so all sorts of spectators grabbed their picnic baskets and, and uh, their supplies, and they got on their carriages, and they followed the Union troops down to Manassas, Virginia, to the Creek of Bull Run to watch the battle. And uh, some of the soldiers actually brought their new brides to watch them fight and fight this great battle that was going to end the Civil War. Well, we know how the battle ended up. Uh, the, it wasn't the South who was routed. It was the North who was routed. And these spectators and these soldiers and these brides had to run for their lives. Uh, and as frightening as that would have been to have been there as a spectator, a bride at the Battle of Bull Run, it doesn't even compare to the battle that's going to take place at Armageddon. So let's kind of set the scene. We go back, and I'm going to ask you to use your imagination a little bit, but we go back in the first part of chapter 19, and we're looking at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I mean, we're having this great party, this great celebration, and uh, it goes on for uh, seven years, and we're 
uh, playing instruments and singing praises to the Lord. I mean, look at some of these praises here. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor belong to the Lord. Let us rejoice and be glad for the marriage supper of the Lord is here. I mean, what a great time that's going to be. But it's only going to last. I mean, that's a long time, but it's only going to last seven years. And then we're going to come back with the Lord to the earth to begin our honeymoon. That's what a lot of expositors call this, call this thousand year millennium. They call it the honeymoon of the bride. And so we're going to come back to earth to begin this honeymoon. And I can kind of imagine the scene. You know, we've, we've been celebrating with the Lord. We've been having this big party. And the Lord comes. He says, guys, girls, the party's over. We're heading back to the earth to begin our honeymoon. And I'm hear somebody saying, well, Lord, where, where are we going? Are we going to go to, we're going to go to Hawaii for a honeymoon? I mean, maybe, how about the Swiss Alps or the, the French Riviera? And the Lord says, no, we're going to Israel. And Roy says, hey, I've never been to Israel. That's great, Lord. <laughs> and then the Lord says, and we're going to the Valley of Megiddo to the Battle of Armageddon. And Roy says, say what? But, hey, that's kind of the way it's going to be. We're going to be celebrating, and sure enough, the Lord's going to gather us all together. He's going to tell us to mount our white horses, and he's going to tell us we're heading to earth for the battle of Armageddon. And that's what we want to look at as we begin in chapter number 19, beginning now in verse number 11. So pick up with me in verse number 11. He says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And I love this. He who sat on him is called I love this title of the Lord, faithful and true. If you know the Lord, you know that he's faithful and true. That's one thing you know about the Lord. You know, people that don't know the Lord, they don't know that. But when you enter into a relationship with the Lord, there's one thing you can be sure of, that he's faithful when we're unfaithful, that he's true when we're untrue. So he's faithful and true. And watch this. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So here we get this uh, description of Jesus and he's prepared for battle and it's quite telling that he's riding on a white horse because you remember when the Antichrist comes on the scene in the first part of the tribulation he comes riding in on a white horse now when I was growing up anybody who rode a white horse was a good guy and so uh, the Antichrist comes on the scene looking like he's a really good guy, like he's going to bring peace to the earth, peace to the earth once and for all. But uh, we know that the peace that he brings is a false peace, and, and it's based upon ungodliness, it's based upon materialism, and it's demonic at its roots. But here comes Jesus, and, and well, we, let me go a little bit further with the Antichrist. In the middle of that peace that he brings to the earth, He's going to come into the temple. He's going to declare himself to be God. And then all hell is going to break out on earth. And there's going to be wars and uh, casualties from those wars like we've never seen before on this earth. But now as we come to verse 11, we see Jesus coming on a white horse. And he's coming to bring peace on earth. But he's bringing a peace that will last forever. Now, how can we be sure that that peace, does, peace is going to last forever? Because he, the one who is coming on the white horse, is faithful and true. I mean, he has promised that he's coming. 
He's promised that he's going to establish truth and righteousness on this earth. He's promised that he's going to give us peace forever. And his word is true. And every promise that he makes is true. And so we know that this promise is true. You know, I feel sorry for people that don't realize that truth is found in the word of God. All truth is found in the word of God because all truth is found in God. I saw on the news this past week where GQ magazine, and I don't subscribe to it and I don't recommend it, but they uh, had a list of the top 10 books you should never read. And the, guess which book topped the list? It was the Bible. And they said you don't want to read the Bible because it's full of lies and it's full of inconsistencies. You know why they say that? Because they've never read the Bible. If they had read the Bible and obeyed the Bible and received the Bible as truth, they would understand that it's not full of lies, that it's full of truth, that it's full of absolute truth. So here Jesus comes, and we know that he's faithful and true. And then look what it says in the last part of the verse. It says, in righteousness, he judges and makes wars. Yeah, did you hear that? that? Not just this war, every war. In righteousness, he judges and makes wars. Now, over the centuries, one of the questions that uh, has been asked in the context of Christian ethics is there such a thing as a just war? Well, let me answer that question for you. There is such a thing as a just war. There, whenever you're on the side of the Lord, it is a just war. Whenever the Lord causes that war and makes that war, and you're on his side in that war, it is a just war. You remember when Joshua and the Israelites had crossed over the Jordan, and they were on the other side, and they had mounted up this great army, and they were about to go into the land and throughout the land, and they were going to thoroughly conquer that land and cast out and kill the Canaanites. You remember Joshua, right before they went into that first battle, he encountered the Lord. He encountered the Lord of hosts. He encountered the Lord of all the armies of heaven. And I mean, he has this vision, and we know it's God because he tells him to take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. The, the angel of the Lord who you are seeing is none other than Lord God Almighty. And Joshua, he was a bold man, and he asked the Lord, he says, are you for us? That, hey, I would want to know that. Lord, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? Because if you're for our adversaries, we're toast. We're heading back to the other side of the Jordan. So he wanted to know, are you for us or are you for our adversary? And I love the answer that Jesus gave him. He said, no. He said, no. He doesn't say, I'm for your adversaries or I'm for you. He says, no. And what did he mean by no? He meant neither. He says, I'm, he says I, listen to what he says. I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. In other words, I'm the one who's faithful and true. I'm the Lord. And the question that you, shouldn't be, you should be asking isn't whose side I'm on, but the question you should be asking is, are you on my side? And, and if you're on my side, then you're going to have victories, and I'm going to give you those victories. And what happened right after that 
you had the battle of Jericho, and hey, all they had to do was blow some trumpets, walk around there several times, and, and the walls of Jericho fell down, and they had a great victory. And they learned right away that it was the Lord, if they were on the Lord's side, they were going to have those victories because he is righteous, and he judges and makes war. Uh, now, the liberal theologian would say this. They would say that Jesus would never advocate war. And they run to the scriptures to prove that. I love how the liberal theologians can take a scripture out of context to prove their point. But they run to the scriptures and they, they quote John 3, 17, where it says, and they don't read the rest of John chapter 3, but they read, quote John 3, 17, and where it says, God did not send his son to judge the world, but to save the world. And they're right in one sense. That is true. He did send his son to save the world. But that was at his first coming. He sent his son to die on our cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life and so that we would not be judged. Everybody else is going to be judged. So that is our means of salvation. So he sent his son to save the world. But you remember as Jesus was about to depart this world, what he said, he said, think not that I came to bring peace on earth. Now, at this point, I came not to send peace, but a sword. That's why he's described in verse number 11 here as the one who judges and makes war. And you know what that means? That means that every war that takes place on this earth, Jesus has a part in that war. And sometimes I think he's judging one nation, but most of the time I think he's judging all the nations that are involved in that war. I mean, at the very least, if God is omniscient and omnipotent and, and omnipresent, and he has all, which means he has all power, he's everywhere, he knows all things. He, it, when there's a war, at the very least, that war comes under the umbrella of his permissive will. He allows that war. And I believe that wars are the judgment of God. He makes, ju he judges and makes war, wars on wicked nations and wicked people. And sometimes that judgment is absolutely like the Battle of Armageddon, we're going to see. It is absolutely total in its effect. You remember when the Israelites went into the land and several times when they were about to fight a nation. You remember what the Lord told them? He told them, I want you to go into that nation and I want you to kill every man, woman, and child. I want you to even to kill their animals. I want you to kill everything they have. Now, why did he do that? That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Well, that's the God of the Old Testament, right? No. What does it say right here? He judges and he makes war. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's Jesus Christ who is God Almighty. Why would he do that? Why would he even say kill the little children? Well, all you have to do is get you a, 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 a biblical history book and read up some, back, about, some background information about what was going on in Canaan during those uh, times, and you'll see why he judged every man, woman, and child. Why he said, kill every man, woman, and child. Those people were so depraved that they sexually abused their children. They, they took their babies and they offered them up as burnt offerings through fire. Then, and at the very least, they raised their kids up to be just as pagan as they were. So God, in his mercy, said, hey, I've had enough of this. And so he says, I want you to destroy every man, woman, and child. So wars are God's judgment on wicked nations. 
And sometimes it's difficult to figure out which side is right. I know sometimes in America we always think we're on the right side. I think a lot of times we do some things that are right, but we do it with some evil motives. I mean, you look at the Iraq war and what went on in Iraq, and we got rid of Saddam Hussein. Maybe that was a good thing. It hasn't turned out so good, by the way. But our soldiers that fought there, I think most of those soldiers went there with the right attitude that they were fighting a just war. And, I, and, and if your attitude's right and you're on the Lord's side, then it is a just war. But I, there also might have been a little bit of motive there pertaining to oil, and that is not a just war. And so I, I, I think it's really, I think it's always foggy to figure out uh, whether, we're on the, whether our nation's on the right side. But I'll tell you what, you can always figure out whether or not you're on the Lord's side or you're on the devil's side. I don't care if it's war and battles fought in, in uh, Iraq or if it's the Civil War or if it's battles you fight in your home or it's battles you fight uh, at your job. If you're on the Lord's side, you're on the right side. And all of this turmoil that goes on on this earth is a result of sin, and it is the judgment of God upon nations and upon people. And, and to, to have peace on earth during this time, to be, be, go beyond this turmoil, you have to be on the Lord's side. Now go ahead, look at verse number 12. It says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name that no one knows except himself and George. I'm going to tell you that name in a minute. I'm going to tell you, give you an answer there in a minute. But whenever we see fire in the Bible, in prophecy, what does it speak of? It speaks of judgment. And so he judges by making war. We saw that in verse number 11. But notice where the fire is coming from. It's coming from his eyes. And so what does that tell us? He judges with his eyes. And so as Jesus mounts this horse and he comes to this earth, his eyes are looking on every soul on the earth. And he sees past the body and into the soul and into the heart, and he sees those who are wicked and those who are not. At this point, everybody on this earth is pretty much wicked. And so everybody, when he makes this war, he does it in righteousness because he sees that these are the people who have taken the mark. These are the people that are rebelling against him. And so he judges them and uh, he makes war against them. Now also look at this description of him. On his head were many crowns. Now remember the Antichrist. Let's compare him to the Antichrist again. How many crowns did the Antichrist have? He had 10 crowns. Very interesting, by the way, that uh, Emmanuel Macron in the past few weeks has called for a 10-nation confederacy uh, and for a European army to because they think of the United States is not going to uh, stand up with them as they should, and so they're, asked, they're, they're thinking they need to stand on their own feet now, and he's calling for a 10-nation army uh, to stand up against Russia in case they invade Europe. I mean, I'm not saying he's the Antichrist, but you can see how quickly uh, all of this could evolve into the end times and into the Great Tribulation. But anyway, uh, the Antichrist has, these, has ten crowns. The kingdom of the Antichrist has ten crowns. Jesus has many crowns. What does that tell us? He's not just over ten kingdoms. He's over every kingdom. He's over all the kingdom of, of the earth. And that's why he's coming to the earth 
He's coming to the earth to rid the earth of the wicked and to establish his kingdom. And the people that are here are going to be people that are going to submit to his rule. Those who won't submit to his rule, hey, they're going to die. They're going to already be dead at this point or they're going to die at the battle of Armageddon. And here we go. He says, and he has a name written that no one knew but himself. Y'all want to know the name? I don't know the name. Of course I don't know the name. And neither do you know the name. And nobody will know the name until he tells us the name. So don't even ask me about that one. If somebody tells you they know the name, you run as fast as you can away from that person because they're nuts. All right, verse, verse number 13. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called, I love this too. I mean, you want some good titles for the Lord. Read chapter 19 of Revelation. And his name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. In the beginning, John says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made by him. He's the creator. He's the Word of God, the Logos. He is all truth. He's all righteousness uh, and all justice. And so... Uh, here he comes, he's, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And here you are, pictured right here in verse number 14. You want to see a picture of yourself? And the armies in heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him, now notice where we're at, they followed him on white horses. Now, Notice the difference in the garments. His garment is dipped in blood. Our garments are perfectly glowing white garments. Why is, why is that so? Because we looked at this verse in Isaiah 13, 3, and we'll see it again in verse 19, 15 of, of this chapter. Uh, he treads the winepress of his wrath alone. Now, you can take that scripture from Isaiah 63 and you interpret it a couple of ways, and I think the meaning is, it goes for both ways. I think, I think what that verse is telling us is that when he died on the cross, he paid for our sins. He shed his blood. His garments were covered in blood so that we could have those white garments that we will have forever and ever and ever. Those perfect white garments of his righteousness. He's clothed us, he's adorned us in his righteousness. But it also has application to the battle of Armageddon because he is going to tread this winepress of his wrath all alone. Now, when we, he died on the cross, it was God's wrath for, against us for our sin, and our sin was paid for there. But the wicked doesn't have their sin paid for, so he's coming at Armageddon to destroy the wicked and shed their blood, and so his robes are covered in blood. Ours aren't covered in blood because i got to tell you something. We're not going to do anything at Armageddon, but watch. He's going to protect his bride. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine uh, if you're there. All right, now, uh, notice what we're riding when we come with him. We're on white horses. That means we're good guys too. And that means we're people of peace too. And that means that we're royalty too. That we're part of the family of the king. 
And so we're going to come with him and we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years on this earth. But notice where we're riding. We're not riding in front. We're not riding alongside of him. We're riding behind him because it is his kingdom and his power and his glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now look at verse number 15. He says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, the word of God, the logos of God. And with it, he, sh that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the alone. He treads the winepress. He himself, that means alone. He alone treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Let me tell you something. The most dangerous weapon in the world is not the hydrogen bomb. The most dangerous weapon in the world is the Logos of God, the Word of God. We're told in Colossians uh, chapter 1, we're told in John chapter 1, that by his word he could created all things. I mean, whether uh, things seen or unseen, powers or principalities, he created it all. He created the devil. He created you and me. He created everything that we see, every material thing that we use to create the things we create, he created all of that. And it also says in chapter 1, verse 17 of Colossians, that in him all things consist. In other words, he holds all things together. How does he hold them all together? Ask a scientist how an atom holds together. They really can't tell you. How does he hold, how is it all held together? By his word. And so all he has to do to destroy something is to simply let go. He speak his word and let go. Now, if those northern soldiers at the Battle of Bull Run had known the outcome of that battle, they never would have taken their brides to the battle. They would have said, hey, well, that's not a good place for you to be. But Jesus can bring his bride when he comes to battle because he knows the outcome. He knows, he's predicted it in his word, and he is faithful and true, and he's predicted that at uh, Armageddon, all the battles, I mean, all the armies of this wor world are going to be defeated and at the, by his spoken word, and, he, and he's faithful and true, and so, hey, he can bring us along. We ride behind him. I mean, we get, you might want to get way back if you, want, you know why he does this. We ride behind him, but when he comes, he destroys all the armies of the world, and, his, and the destruction of the wicked is instantaneous, and it is complete, and there's no one left there to harm his bride. Now notice this, I like this part right here, and sometimes I think we misinterpret this, but notice how he will rule. He says he will rule with a rod of iron. What's that mean? Is he just going to go around popping people on the head with an, with an iron stick? Now, there's some of us he might have to do that with, but that's not what it means at all. That iron doesn't do something. What does it not do? It does not bend. That means when he rules with a rod of iron, he will not bend been his word let me tell you what there will be no such thing as relativism in the millennial kingdom i mean everything will be absolute we will have absolute truth we will have absolute righteousness we will have absolute justice and we will have absolute peace it will all be absolute and hey if you don't like it he knows that already you won't be there if you like truth 
if you like righteousness, if you like peace, and I'm not talking about joy, happiness here, but if you like joy, you're going to, I mean, happiness is going to come too. But hey, you're going to love the millennial kingdom. If, if you like the way things are right now, you don't want to be there. You won't be there. If, if you can't see this world and see how wicked it is and how terrible it is and all the trials and tribulations that are going on, we kind of hide ourselves from that in America. But if you can't see that, you're in trouble. I mean, we, we've all made a mess of things. And we look around and we're going to be in a kingdom where nobody makes a mess. Everything's going to be done right. And we're going to, as a church, we're going to do it not on our own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But those who are not part of the church are going to be ruled with a rod of iron and it's going to be unbending. You go back and read the Mosaic Law and look at how unbending it was. You didn't, you didn't honor the Sabbath, you know, you were stoned. In the millennium, you will be stoned if you don't, if you're not a, a child, children. As children of God, we will honor the Lord in the Sabbath. In the millennium, if you don't honor the Lord on the Sabbath, you will be stoned. You know how many people will be stoned? Zero. You know why? Because the first person, it might be one. But when you really realize the Lord is serious about that and he's not going to bend his justice, then, hey, everybody's going to live according to the rules. And, and what are those rules for? Are those rules to suppress us and to harm us? No, they're for our good. And so all of this is going to be good. And, and, and everybody's going to be serving everybody, and it's going to be, I mean, can you imagine everybody not looking out for their own needs, but looking out for others first? That means, hey, you're looking out for people's needs, but everybody on earth is looking out for your needs. How, how wonderful of a place is that going to be when he rules with this rod of iron? And that's the way it's going to be. All right, now, verse 16. And he has on his robe, I love this name too. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hey, nobody else on this earth can wear that title on their thigh. And don't tell me he's not God. You think God Almighty who says he will not share his glory with anyone would allow Jesus to wear that title if he was anything less than God? He is God Almighty. He is the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all, all lords. That means he is above all. That means his name is above all names. And everybody's going to know that when he comes back to this earth at Armageddon. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun above the earth. And he cried with a loud voice saying, I'm in verse 17, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. All of these armies, they're going to die. Every single soldier is going to die. The, fle the flesh of horses and the flesh of those who sit on them, they're all going to get wiped out. But that's not all here. Look at this. And the flesh of how many people? All people, all who are on this earth. At this point, the earth is left with wicked people. And so all people, free and slave, whether they're in the army or not in the army, both small and great, they're going to die at the timing of this battle of Armageddon. And notice what he calls it. Notice what he calls it. He calls it the great, the supper, rather, of the great God. The supper of the wrath of God. I mean, think about what he's saying right there. I mean, the people who die in this aren't going to dinner, 
They're going to be dinner. I mean, what a stark contrast between the supper of the great God and the wedding supper of the Lamb. Those of us who go to the wedding supper of the Lamb for seven years are going to celebrate and, and have a big party and uh, be married to, the, to, the, to, to Christ forever, and it's going to be the most joyous occasion uh, we've ever experienced in our lives. And maybe, you know, just keeps going on throughout eternity. I mean, it's a great celebration. But then you look at this supper of the great God, and that is a terrible supper where the flesh of the wicked becomes the meal for the birds. Now, listen to me. You're going to be at one of those suppers. You will either be at the wedding supper of the Lamb where you will be fed dinner, or you will be at the supper of the great God where you will be dinner for the birds. Well, what if I die before the Armageddon? You will be dinner for worms. You're going to be dinner for somebody. And maybe all of us could say we're going to be dinner for worms. But you won't just be dinner for worms. You will leave your body and you will go straight to Hades. And there in Hades you will be in torment until the great white judgment seat when Christ appears to judge the wicked nations and then you will be cast into the lake of fire and there you will dwell with the devil and his demons and the antichrist and the false prophet forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, pastor, I don't believe that. Tough. Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. He is faithful and he is true. And my response to anybody who says that is, you better at least give it a chance. You better at least check it out. You better at least find out or you're going to find yourself, you're going to be supper. You're going to be dinner for these birds at Armageddon. Then listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, and I saw the beast. Now watch how quick you think, oh, they're going to have this great battle and swords are going to be uh, flying around and missiles are going to be flying around. There's this great battle and and uh, watch how quick it all takes place. He says, I saw the, the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, imagine the nerve. Isn't that a lot of nerve? I mean, you, you understand the, the thinking of some people, this audacity to think that somehow you can stand against God. No one can stand against God, but people try that every day. I look at what's going on in the wonderful state of California and, and what their politicians are doing and how they are, are almost, in essence, spitting in the face of God and standing against God and the laws that they're passing. And, and it's happening all over America today. And I listen to these godless politicians come against God, come against Christ. And I say, you got a lot of nerve. You got a lot of audacity to do that. Because you're going you're gonna to get away with that for a while. But one day, a day of reckoning is coming, and watch how fast it comes for these, these uh, people. It says in verse number, number 20, there's no interlude here or anything. It just says, then the beast was captured just like that. And with him, the false prophet, just like that, who worked signs in his presence. Hey, those signs don't mean anything now. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two, now they don't even go to Hades. Watch what happens to them. They get, a, they, 
they get to pass gold, they get $200. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Friends, that is a description of no other place but hell. That is hell. And the rest were killed. Anyone who took the mark, everybody who didn't take the marks out of there at this point. They've gone to the wedding supper of the Lamb. All those who took the mark, they were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. They died, they were eat, their flesh is eaten by the birds, their souls go to Hades, and they await the great white throne judgment where they face God, and then they're cast into the lake of fire. Now, that's not good news. But the rest of this is great news. I mean, it's really... You know, I don't feel sorry for people so much when you see this blatant antichrist spirit where people come against God and try to stand against God, and it makes you so mad. But, hey, we got to remember at one time in our life we did that too. And our job is to pray for those people. But if they don't change, one day a day of reckoning is coming. And in a blink of an eye, and just like that, the rebellion against God is going to be over. And Jesus will land on this earth riding his white horse and his bride, that's you and I, will be with him and he will establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And then the curse is removed. I mean, no longer do you have toothaches, no longer do you have weeds in your garden, no longer do you have all these things that we... We, we face because of the curse that's on this earth and everybody's under the rule of Christ and truth and righteousness and the earth is made like Carmel again, like the garden of God. That's what Carmel means, the garden of God. And then we begin to enjoy our thousand-year honeymoon with the Lord. And then guess what? After the thousand years, we go into eternity where we dwell on this earth with him forever, a new earth, a new heaven, new Jerusalem, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We got it, we, we got it pretty good, don't we? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Don't forget, when we, when we finish the song, stay here, and uh, we're going to deal with one issue, and then I'll let you go. Father, we just again thank you for... for just the glorious truth that we read in your word. And those of us who know you, Lord, we know that you're faithful and true. We know that every single word in this Bible is your absolute truth. Lord, that's why we go to your word for our truth. Father, that's why we... That's why we've chosen to give our lives to you. Lord, so that you can redeem us so that we can be part of your kingdom forever and ever and ever. Lord, we want to be your bride, your glorious bride. We want to come with you when you come to Armageddon and you set up your rule on this earth. Father, if there's anyone here today who hasn't truly made that decision to accept the salvation that you've offered through the cross, I ask today, Lord, that you touch their hearts and that today be the day of their salvation. Father, that they receive Christ and, 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 and begin to look in your word and see that you're faithful and true in all that you say.
Father, we love you for your truth. We love you for your grace. We love you for sending Christ to save us. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.